This is the Hindu on Books, a weekly podcast from India's national newspaper on the latest and the best from the world of literature. Hello and welcome to the Hindu Books podcast. I'm Anand Krishnan, your host for today. In this episode, we are truly honored to be joined by Shivshankar Menon, author of the new book, India and Asian Geopolitics, The Past, Present. Mr. Menon, as most listeners probably know, served as a national security advisor to the Prime Minister of India from 2010 to 2014, is a former foreign secretary of India, as well as a career diplomat who served as India's ambassador or high commissioner to Sri Lanka, Pakistan, and China. More than that, Ambassador Menon is one of India's leading thinkers on foreign policy. In my view, at least, I would say the leading thinker on foreign policy and has been for years such a valuable and generous guide to anyone trying to understand the subject from journalists, including myself, to students, including at Ashoka University, where Mr. Menon has been teaching. Mr. Menon's 2016 book, Choices, Inside the Making of India's Foreign Policy, has become a Bible of sorts, I think, for anyone who is a student of foreign policy. Even for reporters, including myself, I can tell you I've lost count of the number of times I've gone back to refer to it, whether the chapter on China and how the line of actual control came into being, or the nuclear deal with America, or even the response to the Mumbai attacks to make sense of relations with Pakistan. If choices gave us a granular look at the making of foreign policy, the decisions, sometimes when even when Mr. Mayan admits himself there are no good decisions to be made. His new book gives us a stunning macro view. It looks at India's geography, history, and situates India in the broader region, going back to the past, how we crafted our foreign policy, and how we came to understand our place in the world. It goes back to the first few difficult years post-independence, to how India navigated the Cold War, and then the age of globalization, some of the topics that we will be discussing today. Thank you so much, Mr. Menon, for joining us. Thank you for having me, and thank you for that very flattering and undeserved okay. introduction. No, no, it was fully deserved. Uh, I wanted to begin with the very first sentence of your new book, which I thoroughly enjoyed. Uh, for listeners, it's now available uh, everywhere in India. You begin by saying the Indian subcontinent is the only subcontinent in the world. And it kind of uh, made me uh, think... On the one hand, as you say, we have this unique geography. I don't want to say uh, maybe perhaps even an exceptional sense of ourselves in the world, thanks to this unique geography. But on the other hand, we are still part of this broader region. So is there an almost inherent tension here in terms of our uniqueness versus our place in this region? There is, I think. In fact, that's precisely why I start the book with that, because it seems to me that because we're the only subcontinent, we are part of a larger continent, and we're right. aware of that. Uh, but we also have a very strong sense of our own exceptionalism, of our uniqueness, of how different we are. And therefore, there's always a tendency to actually draw down the shutters, mm-hmm. withdraw to our own home. Uh, even though, and that's the main point of the book, actually, is because that worries me, the fact that I think 
we have something of that indrawing going on right now. Mm. For me, the lesson of our history, our experience since independence is that India does best the more connected she is with the rest of the world, the more engaged she is with the rest of the world. And I think that's proven right through history over and over again. It's those parts of India which were connected to the world through the Indian Ocean. You know, the whole east coast of India, Coromandel Coast, all the way up to Vanga, mm. and the west coast, Malabar, all the way up to the Gujarat coast. Uh, these are the parts that were the most advanced economically, the most prosperous, the most stable core areas in terms of civilization and culture, and the ones which were most in touch with the rest of the world for the last 3,000 years, more in fact, if you add Indus Valley and its connections west. So for me, that's the important thing, that lesson that we, I at least draw from our geography. Because as you said, the strong sense of exceptionalism when things get tough outside, it's very easy to say, no, forget the world. Let's just, you know, self-reliance can tend to become autarky. Right. Which is, and that's where I think there is danger. So the book is actually a plea for engagement with the world, even though things have got very tough. Mm. When you look at the global economy, geopolitics, etc. The other thing that I really uh, found really interesting was going back to 1947, uh, we kind of tend to forget now how difficult uh, the situation domestically was uh, and the whole process and the debate that you outline as well of how we came to think of our place in the world, I thought was really interesting. Uh, and Nehru's role in that, especially, there's this great anecdote where he points out to this young diplomat, a map who later becomes a foreign secretary, um, a world map. And he says, you know, we're going to have 40 missions in these places in five years. And then he goes and does it. Yeah. So was it really a case at the start of us uh, punching above our weight? I think because we had a vision of ourselves, of our own role, of our place in the world, our place in world civilization. And I think that actually prevented us from choosing short-term maximalist solutions, as most politicians would. Mm. In fact, in some ways, it helped that we had a vision. It helped us to overcome the limitations of capacity, capability, of, of a very, actually a difficult bipolar Cold War world, which was being formed at that time. Mm. And uh, it enabled, because we had this sense of who we were and of our own interests, and I think got our priorities right. Our priority was transforming India, the lives of the Indian people. That was our priority. Everything right. else was to serve that. And I think because we got that right, we managed to come out of a very difficult situation after partition, after the Chinese moved into Tibet, mm. our whole geopolitics had changed. Quite apart from the, if you think of it, we were fighting a war from day one. We were dealing with the refugees from partition. It, for me, it's quite amazing what they did in those first few years against so many odds stacked up against them, that initial generation of leaders, not that they agreed on everything mm. or that they all thought alike. Not at all. But they had the, I think, awareness of being engaged in something much bigger. And uh, they weren't playing day-to-day -day politics mm. with these big issues, which is why many of the things they did at that time have lasted. And why we've gone back to that in various forms. You, know, you might say, oh, we're no longer non-aligned. But when we say strategic autonomy, mm -hmm. 
we mean exactly much the same, that we keep the power of decision-making in our own hands mm. on big issues. So for me, that's actually a very important formative period. The other thing that I think we tend to forget, because we now take all this progress for granted, yeah. is a very difficult legacy that imperialism actually left us. Mm. Because they built a sub-imperial system centered on India. So in much of Southeast Asia, East Asia, Indians were the enforcers of imperialism, of colonialism. I'm Shanghai policemen, for instance, right. who had to enforce signs on the park saying no dogs in Chinese. Mm. You know, that's not a memory that people forget very easily. And yet, thanks to what we did, and here the credit goes really to Nehru, to his sensitivity, uh, Within a few years, that legacy was actually wiped out because of his very active role in decolonization, because he was on, on the side of history, actually, if you look at it. And those weren't easy choices. And those were not unanimous choices in the leadership. There were those in India who thought we should continue to play the role with Britain that we had before of being a security provider all the way to Australia, etc. Uh, actually, that was a pivotal period. And I think I, I was very impressed by it. So there is, yes, a rather long bit in the book about that period. Mm. But I think because, because for me, that is important. Many of the basic lines of policy were actually laid down at that time. So the fact that uh, India decided to be outspoken, uh, for instance, on decolonization as it unfolded in, in Asia, in Africa as well, uh, also, yeah. the fact that he, the Nehru, championed the Spanish-Asian idea of solidarity. So it wasn't so much rooted in idealism or something really woolly-headed, but actually it was something that one could argue had very uh, tangible legacy. I, I think you know if you look at it, at what Nehru wrote internally in the notes and so on, and much of it is now out in the selected works. I think it's quite clear that he had a fairly solid, realist understanding of what was going on in the world. And he knew the limits of power, but he used other things, soft power, essentially, in various forms. And alliances, what was this? But building a broader coalition of countries. Uh, and that's what happened, whether it's Asian Relations Conference, whether it's Bandung, uh, whether what ultimately became the non-aligned movement in the 60s. In all this, what was he doing? He was compensating for India's lack of hard power, mm. but getting our way and doing it with others in a way that that worked very well, actually, if you think of it. He made some big mistakes. It's not that, and I think I go through some of those in, in the book. But uh, by and large, I think the basic lines of policy that he laid down for that time, I find it quite remarkable that he managed to do that. Uh, and I think, you know, we are at another hinge moment globally today. If you, my, my belief is not that we have suddenly got a multipolar world ready to go. No, I think we are between orders today. And the world is really quite confused. It might be economically multipolar, but that's it. Uh, the rest of it, military power, political power, all that, we're still between orders. And I think there's multiple ways in which we could go. But this is a time when it's important that we be very clear-eyed in our vision of what we see for the international order and how we work with the order in order to transform India, I think, rather than seek some status goals and so on.
Mm. I wanted to ask you next about uh, the Cold War and, and non-alignment. Um, there's this great line in the book that I liked. Now that the rules-based order is the, is the flavor of the moment, uh, you remind us that the, 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 the foundational myth of this idea that it's been in place for decades Though, uh, as you say, quote, in reality, it was neither liberal nor rules-based for most of Asia. Um, you also point out that non-alignment actually had a realist basis, though the way we look back at it now uh, seems to be that seems to be kind of airbrushed uh, out of how it came into being. Uh, and that you make the point that for, for a middle power that made the most sense. I wanted to, uh, to uh, ask you to speak a little bit about that as well as uh, you did mention uh, now that we are at another hinge moment. So are there lessons that we can draw from that period uh, as to how middle powers navigated the world then and how they need to navigate it now? Well, I do think that, yes, as you said, uh, this idea of a liberal international rule-based order, uh, this is really post hoc creation in the minds of, and it's I think it's very successful propaganda, actually, because most people seem to have been at least in the West, have convinced themselves that this was a liberal order. You know, for Asia, if you look at the Cold War, this the killing fields were all in Asia. Yeah. That's where all the battlefield casualties took place. And the wars, whether it's Korea, Vietnam, you know, some of the wars that we were involved in, what happened in the Middle East, the repeated wars, actually, three of them were around Israel and Palestine. So there's a whole series of of Cold War conflicts. So when people talk of the Cold War as a long peace, it might have been peaceful in Europe. <laughs> it might have been peaceful between the superpowers, but it was not peaceful for the rest of us. And it certainly wasn't liberal because we didn't have a say in the order. We had no, we, it wasn't, it was, the difference I think is that it was uh, for India, there was clarity of purpose. We knew what was important to us, what we wanted. And this is why. And I think we also, we don't like to say it, but the fact is the Cold War binary bipolar world made non-alignment possible. Hmm. You could deal with both sides. You could get what you could from both sides. You could try and generate a competition between them in terms of assistance. How did you build the IITs? You go to one, one side says yes, the other one wants to compete, produces another IIT. This is benign competition actually mm. and in a sense it's it's using bipolarity uh, the cold war so yes the cold war also created space for you to carry messages for instance on during the korean war mm. or to work with both sides to try and enlarge what nehru used to call the area of peace uh, now History never repeats itself exactly. It's not as though we are suddenly now in a bipolar world where China and the U.S. have replaced the Soviet Union and the U.S. China and the U.S. are codependent economically. They are not like the Soviet Union and the U.S. were. Nor is China offering an alternate order. Yep. China, in fact, is the, is the greatest beneficiary of the U.S.-led economic order. If you look at what she achieved over 40 years uh, of almost 10% growth, uh, so, and she's not saying we want a whole different order. We, the Soviet Union stood for a very different ordering of society, the economy, politics, everything. I mean, there was a socialist bloc and there was the capitalist bloc from their point of view. That's not what we're seeing today. So, 
it's not as though we can therefore say, oh, what we did then, we build a broad coalition of middle powers, we work with everybody else, we do the same, we play them both against each other. That's not the options today. Secondly, but, but secondly, your interests have also grown tremendously compared to what they were earlier. Today, we are much more connected to the world than we were. Today, almost half our GDP depends on the external sector. So maritime security across the whole Indo-Pacific today really matters to you. 38% of your trade goes through the South China Sea. So freedom of navigation in the South China Sea matters to you. Uh, you have a much more fraught geopolitical situation. You are now next to the center of gravity of world politics, whether you like it or not. It's the rise of China. It's a pushback against that. It's China-US tensions. During the Cold War, the problem was in the Fulda Gap. The center of gravity was, or at least the central fork line was Germany, was between the Soviets and, and the Americans in Europe. Uh, not here. So you could, you were in a sense a sideshow, a backwater, and that gave you some space to operate. Today, both the Americans and the Chinese are busy working on the Nepalese. The Americans to get the Nepalese to sign on to free and open Indo-Pacific. And the Chinese, obviously, because of Tibet and other interests, mm. are actually involved in internal Nepalese politics and trying to keep the Communist Party together. Yeah. This is a very different situation from the old Cold War. So while there are lessons to be learned at the broadest level, you know, about clarity of purpose, about looking at various options, at working within an existing balance of power, but trying to improve it, etc., I don't think you can draw direct lessons saying, oh, we were online then, we must be online today. Mm -hmm. Oh, we formed an online movement, or we held a Bandung conference, and therefore that's what I don't think we should. That today we need to draw our own lessons from what we see around us. And uh, there are some that maybe sound like or look like the past. I do think that we can work with a much broader range of powers than just working with the major powers, because we do. There are other countries which share our interests. Uh, but I think today we couldn't make the economic choices we made in the 50s and 60s. We, we are part of the world. We are dependent on the world for energy, for raw materials, for, for a whole host of things, for technology. So we need to actually get out there and engage. And my fear is that we might be going in the wrong direction. We walked out of RCEP. We're the only major economy which is not part of any regional trading arrangement. Uh, we've raised tariffs steadily for the last four years. Uh, and by doing all this, it's as though we are saying that we don't think we'll be competitive for the next 20 years, because 20 years was the adjustment period mm -hmm. under our CEP. That's not a good message to send, either to your own people or to the rest of the world. And in fact, by doing this, we are guaranteeing that we won't be competitive, because we're not even there. We're not part of global supply or value chains. And we need to actually make ourselves more competitive rather than less, more engaged rather than less at a time like this. So that's one reason why I wrote the book. Uh, and coming to China, uh, there's a, lots of uh, great details in the book about 1950s, uh, the moment that led to 1962, uh, including something that uh, I found really interesting were the details of this 1959 Dimash and Pan Suli who offered this very kind of realist rooted uh, approach to deal with India, which uh, perhaps I suppose was either missed or the whole mood of the moment in 1959 made it difficult for us to come to an understanding with them. 
I think a bit of both. I think that that message that, look, China has other things to worry about, meaning the U.S. in the East. We don't want to face two fronts. Would you like to face two fronts? In other words, threatening you with Pakistan. Uh, I'm not sure how much of that actually went home. Besides, I think there was an instinctive sort of revulsion against, well, geopolitics or power politics, which is what this was. This was raw power politics, an offer made to you saying, we have other things to worry about. You don't want to front problems either. So let's at least get, learn to get along. And, and I think, you know, as I try and describe in the book, if you look at the overall situation of 59, that's when the Dalai Lama came across the border. Yeah. That's when Tibet was up in flames. You had floods of Tibetan refugees coming. Public of the, China had just revealed the extent of, full extent of her boundary claims in January. So all in all, it was, uh, I think public opinion was really inflamed. Uh, and there wasn't much room for maneuver. Mm. Uh, and unfortunately, I think we approached it, like all countries do, from our own point of view. When Joe and I came in 60 mm. with an offer, which maybe was interim, whatever, we don't know. Uh, I think Nehru tried to show him the depth of feeling and how difficult right. it was for him to compromise by sending him to each of his ministers or some of the stalwarts. Mm. Mm. Vice President Radhakrishnan to Govind Balapanth, Home Minister, and so on. And those conversations were disasters because <laughs> we mm. did it the way we would among ourselves, openly, saying, look, this is terrible what you've done. How could you do this? And, you know, Cho and I thought he was being set up, which is mm. what it would have been in reverse. If Nehru had had to go from one Chinese leader yeah. to another, listening to lectures about Indian bad behavior, it would have been an organized performance in order to convey a message. And I think Cho and I, being Chinese, took it the Chinese way. We thought we were being open and frank and trying to show him. <laughs> Nehru mm. spent a lot of time, over 20 hours, one-on-one -on -one with him, with just interpreters in the room, going through it and trying to explain to him the limits of what, that, what he was asking was not possible and so on. Uh, and so it's a combination of both things that you mentioned. And maybe we didn't pick up some of those realist signals, but also I think of, of mutual misunderstanding on both sides. And then I think it got involved not just in our politics, yeah. but it got involved in Chinese internal politics. And I think that is really what made the war inevitable because it was part of Mao's comeback strategy after the Great Leap Forward and the disasters of the famine and so on. Uh, coming to the, the present situation with China, uh, you in the second half of the book, you deal with the present. Uh, China, obviously, is one of the themes that you explore. Uh, you do outline how we came to this 1988 understanding uh, that you continue negotiations on the boundary while pursuing the status quo, uh, that you agree that differences don't come in the way of cooperating elsewhere. It seems that a lot of that now doesn't really hold anymore. Uh, but looking back, do you think it lasted perhaps in some ways longer than you would have expected at the time, that it kind of exceeded expectations? And, and uh, are well, you pretty clear now that it's done? Uh, you know, I think some of us have been arguing for some time, mm -hmm. uh, for a decade almost. In fact, a little more than a decade. 
that uh, the old modus vivendi is no longer works. It's under stress to begin with. And those signs of stress were clear. You know, you see it in the difference between what the Chinese did at the NSG in 2008 and what they did when we went for membership in 2015. You saw it in the escalating series of incidents on the border, mm. whether it's, you know, Depsang 2013, Chuma 2014, Doklam 2017. You saw it also in the Chinese approach to various other issues which bothered you, whether it was designating Masood Azar, this, uh, most of all, you saw a huge increase in the Chinese commitment to Pakistan. In 1996, Jiang Zemin, the president, went and told the Pakistani assembly, you should do with India what we are doing. Discuss your differences, your difficulties, but don't let that stop you from developing a normal relationship, trading, traveling, and so on. Of course, the Pakistanis didn't want to hear that because for them, everything should be first settled Kashmir, otherwise nothing else, etc. But that was very different from Xi Jinping's commitment to the CPEC, $62 billion, and the kind of commitments that they were making to Pakistan thereafter uh, in, in the last decade or so. And in fact, if you look at CPEC, it represents a Chinese stake in the continued Pakistani hold of Indian territory in Kashmir. Right. Because now they have assets there to protect, and mm. they've done it with Pakistan. So... So there, is a, there was a fundamental shift over time. And I think some of us saw it as stress and said that this modus vivendi is no longer good enough. Uh, in 2020, of course, the Chinese tore up the modus vivendi because the basis on which it was done was maintain the status quo and keep the peace. Mm. And the border stayed much the same until then without fundamental changes and so on. But in 2020, they tried to change the status quo across the line in the Western sector. And uh, clearly, that whole LAC now is live. There is the relationship needs a reset. Now, whether it's done consciously or whether it just happens and evolves as a new normal uh, depends on both the governments. They're both saying different things. The Chinese seem to be saying, let's just go back to the old days. In other words, yeah. we've done what we want to do. We've changed what we had to. And then he says, now let's meet us halfway, which means now that I've changed it, I'm ready to do something. And, you know, that won't work. I mean, we've been through this dance before, through from 59 onwards, 59 to 60. Actually, we went through very much similar kinds of arguments. When China would say, okay, we have an LAC now, now let's negotiate from here onwards. You know, uh, so let's see, we are still in the middle of a negotiation, of a crisis actually, because the crisis is not over, nowhere near over until Depsang, Gogra, there's a whole series of points. And in any case, since the understanding has been torn up by Chinese behavior, uh, so now we have to actually see whether we can rebuild the relationship on a new basis or not. I'm not very optimistic, but I think the attempt has to be made. Let's see. Uh, but as I said, it's very hard in the middle of a crisis, while a negotiation is going on, to actually be either very optimistic or negative about this. There's this is one tidbit that really uh, hit me from, from 2013, where you say that uh, the, the PLA was told the Indian Army that uh, essentially, why were you wasting all this time speaking to the diplomats in Beijing. I mean, we could have solved this much earlier uh, regarding the Depsang crisis, uh, which made me think a lot about what happened in 2020, where on the one hand, you have the PLA doing all this on the ground, mobilizing in thousands, 
But on the other hand, you have the diplomats kind of speaking from a different page. So does this kind of tell us that we should be clear about the fact that whatever the, P- the PLA is driving its interests are taking precedence over perhaps the other areas of cooperation that we could have found in the relationship? I think power in China has shifted in favor of the PLA some time ago. And I think we are maybe one of the later ones to feel it. The Japanese, I think, felt it first. When they had a deal basically on joint exploration and you know how to divide up the East China Sea uh, and how to deal with oil that was under that sea, which was basically torn up by the PLA. PLA refused to let a deal which had been agreed by the by the president of China's special envoy with the special envoy of the Japanese prime minister. And you see this increasing role of the PLA across the board. In South China Sea, for instance, 2015, uh, 2013, Xi Jinping himself as president promises that no militarization. But what do you see? You see continued militarization in various deniable forms to begin with. You use militia, you use Coast Guard, you use but what, what people call gray zone sort of warfare. Uh, and you've seen a militarization of Chinese policy everywhere. My fear is that, the, you know, if you have a hammer, every problem looks like a nail, right? And if you end up, and you've seen the militarization of U.S. policy as well. When that becomes your most effective instrument, then that's what you reach for. Uh, so there is, and I've seen this happening steadily with Chinese policy. Uh, so, yes, I think the PLA has a much bigger say now in these matters and in how to deal with us. And certainly when it comes to the boundary and so on, the border, they will, they, they count. A final question uh, on your final chapter, India's Destiny, uh, which of course ultimately will be shaped by what happens at home. Uh, you say we are offered two pictures. One is uh, of fear and polarization, the other being of self-confidence and ambition. Uh, looking at the events of the last couple of years, uh, looking at the current horrific crisis we are in the middle of right now, um, one worries in which of the two directions we seem to be heading. Um, so I would just like to get your thoughts on a, on a final note. You uh, know, I mean, it's, it's very hard to, to say where we're actually going. I mean, as somebody once said, pessimists are always right, <laughs> but the optimists ultimately win. Hmm. Uh, and I, I'd like to be an optimist. I mean, I, but it's it's very hard today to to actually say which of these roads. Yeah, it's clear from the book which road I think we should take. Mm. What I think we should do in order to be true to ourselves and to our own people. I mean, that's because that's our primary responsibility. But uh, I I only hope that the optimists win. Let's see. Well, I completely agree with you on that count. Thank you so much, uh, Basil Menon, for taking the time uh, and speaking to us about your new book, which, uh, as I mentioned at the start of this podcast, is now available in India, and I highly recommend it. Thank you so much again for sharing your thoughts with the Hindu today. Thank you, Anand. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to The Hindu on Books. You can now find The Hindu's podcasts such as In Focus and Parley on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and other major platforms. Write to us with comments and feedback at SOCMED4, S-O-C-M-E-D-4 at the rate thehindu.co.in. 